Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Welcome to our inauguration day episode. As we record this, Joe Biden has now been sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. The confirmation process for Janet Yellen, Joe Biden's nominee for the Secretary of Treasury, is well underway and seemingly assured. Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, is now the majority leader of the Senate. And Ron Wyden, the Democratic senator from Oregon, will soon be the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. So, yes, big changes are happening in the world of tax policy. Thus, today, we turn to the question that you are no doubt thinking, okay, now what? Well, that's hard to answer, of course, but we will do our best. And truthfully, things are beginning to come into focus just a little bit. So today, we can discuss what we know, what we don't know, and how we think events at least could play out. And to do so, I'm joined by our friends, Carol Coolish and Jennifer Gray. To start with, let's talk about what Joe Biden told us last week about his 100-day-plus agenda. You may recall that Biden gave a speech outlining his plan to deal with both the ongoing COVID crisis and the ongoing economic crisis. In that speech, Biden outlined a $1.9 trillion rescue plan to be followed sometime thereafter by a recover plan. So two steps, rescue followed by recover. So Carol, let me start with you. Can you just outline what Joe Biden discussed last week as part of his rescue plan? His rescue plan is basically an emergency legislative package to provide further COVID relief, sort of in three pots. One relates to mounting a national vaccination program, reopening schools, and containing COVID through things like testing, eliminating supply shortage problems, investing in treatments. He also wanted to, number two, send additional checks to certain households and do some other things that would directly help people, housing, nutrition assistance, child care assistance, things like that, increasing the minimum wage, extending and expanding unemployment insurance benefits, providing a 400 per week supplement to some people for unemployment through at least September of 2021. And then it also included providing support for the hardest hit small businesses and protecting jobs of essential workers. That's the big picture. From a tax perspective, it does include some tax components. It includes additional cash payments to some Americans of $1,400 per person, in addition to the $600 payments that were provided by the legislation that was enacted last December. That's presumably a tax provision. Presumably, they're going to go ahead and continue to use the tax credit mechanism that they used for previous what they call recovery rebates. It also includes extending the refundable credit for certain paid leave programs, temporarily expanding and making refundable child care tax credits temporarily making the child tax credit fully refundable and making 17-year-olds qualifying children and increasing the amount of the credit, temporarily expanding the earned income tax credit and increasing the value of the health insurance premium tax credit. So basically continuing to use the tax code as we did in some of the prior COVID relief legislation to provide some relief. And that $1,400 number plus the $600 number, I assume the intent is to top off the December payment to get to the 2000 that people were talking about. Is that where the 1400 comes from? Yes. Got it. Jennifer, let's just talk about step two, the recover plan for just a moment. Do we know anything about what might be in that recover plan? 
my understanding is that we will see more details when we get to February on that. I'm guessing that President Biden will want to make an address to Congress probably in February. That's pretty normal for a new president. But from what he outlined in his speech a few days ago, he indicated that he wanted to see investments in infrastructure, child independent care, climate change, R&D, manufacturing. So those are the major items he hit upon. Just to hit on the, you know, how are we going to pay for this idea? It sounds like that could potentially be quite a lot of money. In his speech, he mentioned that everyone should pay their fair share. And in particular, he mentioned closing tax loopholes for companies that either ship American jobs overseas or rules that allow American companies to pay zero federal income tax. So that's generally what we know is just what he mentioned in that speech a week or so ago. So a couple interesting points there. Tax increases could be in the mix there as point one. And point two, as you rattled off that list of things that the president talked about as potentially being in the recover plan, a lot of those sounded a lot like, and I know we've talked about this before, but the House Democratic Infrastructure Bill that we saw last year, the Moving Forward Act, really had a lot of those same categories. And it also sounds reminiscent to me of the Recovery Act of 2009, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was one of then President Obama's first legislative accomplishments in getting that through, which was heavy on infrastructure and other areas as well. So it sounds like we could see something along the lines of infrastructure plus with potentially some tax offsets in that bill. Is that what you're saying then, Jennifer? I think so. And I suspect that the number and amount of tax offsets they look at will probably be tied at least somewhat to the amounts that folks want to spend in that bill. Interesting. Okay. We're going to come back to that one too. So Carol, I said, we're going to come back to rescue. Let's do that. You know, it's one thing for then president-elect, now President Biden to propose this bill. But as we always like to remind people, the executive branch can only in the end sign or veto a law. Congress has to write it. So let's just talk about this process from the president proposing it to turning it into law. What's going to have to happen for this to get to the president's desk for signature? Well, let me also say that in terms of timing before getting to the mechanics, I do think that both congressional Democrats and the Biden administration want to get something done quickly because some of the unemployment programs and other programs that have been put into place to respond temporarily to the COVID situation expire in mid-March. So I think they want to move quickly from where they are now to enactment. And obviously there's a legislative process that has to go on. You have to get something to pass the House, pass the Senate. They both have to agree to the same bill, pass that and go to the president to become law. With Democrats controlling, albeit narrowly, both the House and the Senate, I think they can get a consensus to move something very quickly. The the critical question is going to be, can they get Republicans on board so that they could try to get 60 votes in the Senate if they got Republican support and move it through in a bipartisan manner, which I think is how Biden wants to start. I think he wants to see whether this is a package that he could get bipartisan support for, but he might then have to modify it in a way that might not satisfy his goals or other Democratic members' goals, particularly make it smaller. I know some Republicans have expressed concerns given that they've already passed in December a $900 billion COVID relief package. If they don't have much Republican support, though, in order to get it to pass the Senate, you usually need 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. They'd need to use special budget reconciliation procedures to move the bill with only a majority vote in the Senate. So that would mean having to pass a budget resolution first that sets the revenue target for the bill and then sending forth instructions to the committees to draft legislation to meet those targets through the reconciliation process. But it's a vote counting exercise among the Democrats at that point. They have to make sure they hold 
hold virtually every Democrat on board in the House. And if they don't have Republican support in the Senate, they may need to hold all the Democrats on board. So they're putting together the legislation in a way where they need to know that they have the sufficient support of Democrats. But I think that's achievable here because I think there's generally consensus in the things that they want to do. And I don't think they are planning on offsetting the cost of the bill, which makes it a little bit easier. They view this as emergency legislation like other COVID legislation, where they're doing this in order to deal with a real crisis in the country right now. So I don't think it's something they're going to pay for. So if they're doing all programs that they're supportive of and not having to deal with revenue offsets, that can make it a little bit easier to reach agreement. Just going back to the process of how this is going to move through Congress, right? This is going to be complicated because we're going to deal with multiple committees of jurisdiction, right? And so how could this go? You could either have multiple committees working on it simultaneously and then trying to move it, or we just avoid the committee process altogether to move it more quickly? Well, this to me seems a lot like the previous COVID relief packages, doesn't it? We're talking the rescue plan, not recover. The rescue Rescue. plan is the one that's a lot like other COVID relief plans, and they were able to move those very quickly. If they are able to get the rescue package done on a bipartisan basis, then they could move it through leadership or through a committee process, but they could use a leadership-driven process. But if they do end up having to use reconciliation to move it through with just largely Democratic support, then they may need to go through the committee process. But either way, I think Democrats are prepared to move quickly, given their interest in speeding up vaccine distribution, extending some of the benefits that expire in March, and otherwise providing relief to families, essential workers, and others affected by COVID. So I think regardless of the process, they're prepared to move quickly. Touching all different sorts of committees and jurisdictional areas, but where there's a will, there's a way. And I think you're right. There's a will to get this done quickly. And then coming back to your other point, which I think is really important, is you don't expect Congress to want to pay for this run. In other words, we're not expecting to see tax offsets attached to this. Did I hear you correctly? Yes, you did. I mean, even Yellen in her confirmation testimony before Senate Finance Committee the other day said that the focus right now is on providing relief, not raising taxes. I view this as one in the series of COVID relief packages, but this one, the Democrats want to do the large bill that they've been talking about for a while, which is where it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get the bipartisan support because they want to go big with this, which is where Democrats wanted to go last year with the HEROES Act that the Senate did not take up. They want to do a very robust robust response to the crisis very quickly. All right. Well, that's very helpful, Carol. It's going to be a complex process moving through Congress, but maybe moving quickly. So Jennifer, the big question is, are the votes there? I mean, we're going to have the Democratic votes almost certainly, but do you think there will be 60 votes in the Senate for this rescue package? And if the answer to that is no, then what do you think happens? I think at this point, it's hard to know. Obviously, they would need to pick up a minimum of 10 Republicans, assuming they can hold all 50 Democrats in the Senate in order to get their 60 votes. I think it's going to maybe depend on what's in the bill and how large it is. I think some Republicans are going to have concerns that, you know, it's too close behind the $900 billion relief bill that was passed in December and that the country really hasn't had the chance to see what sort of response that the economy is having to that bill. It also depends what's in the bill. Again, they only need to get 10 of the 50 Republicans. Something like minimum wage, which has been mentioned, a minimum wage increase, if that's in there, perhaps that makes it more difficult to get those 10 Republicans. So I think it's going to depend on some of the details in the bill. And given that it sounds like this will largely be deficit finance, the size of the bill could also be an issue. At some point, I suspect it will become so large that it's hard for 10 Republicans in the Senate to swallow that deficit bump. 
Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is history doesn't show many examples of these bills getting smaller as they move through Congress. They typically get larger because there are other priorities beyond just what the president has. Although, having said that, Joe Biden will never have more political capital than he has right now. And so maybe he can say this has got to be it, but it could easily get larger, which, as you say, could make it harder. Well, I think if you look, I mean, some of the unemployment numbers that have been coming out have not been great. So I think that could give a bit of momentum behind pushing to something again, another bill. All right. Well, look, let's just assume for the moment that maybe they don't get 60 votes. Then what? Where did Democrats go from there? We're back to our old friend reconciliation, which I think I've spent more of my time on than the past few weeks and I have in quite a while. So again, that's the process where you can pass a bill in the Senate with only 51 votes. That would mean all the Democrats would have to stick together as well as, of course, Vice President Harris coming in and adding that 51st vote. You know, the challenges there is one, they have to pass a budget, which can happen pretty quickly, but is a step that has to happen in order to set up the process of a reconciliation bill. And two, once you get into reconciliation, things just get more complex. We're very familiar, of course, with what that means on the tax side. I think we're less familiar with what that means on the spending side. But when you're looking at discretionary spending, there can be some bird rule problems with that that just make it very hard to put that in a bill, assuming all the rules in the Senate remain the same as they have in the past decades. The bird rule being the rule named for the late Senator Bird, of course, where you can challenge certain things in the bill as being improper for reconciliation under various measures and have them stripped. So let me ask you about one. Minimum wage. One of the rules of reconciliation is that every provision must have a meaningful, in other words, not incidental budgetary effect. Does minimum wage pass that standard? And if the answer is no, I guess it would have to come out. Is that right? Well, that's for the parliamentarian to decide, but certainly there would be an argument that it does not meet the requirements. Of course, it would have a tax impact, i.e. folks who are making minimum wage now, if that increased, they would make more money, they would pay more in federal income taxes, so it would have a impact in that way. The question is, the parliamentarian makes a decision, is that tax impact merely incidental to the policy? And the Republicans, I think, would certainly argue that that is merely incidental, that the purpose is not to make a change to the federal budget and bring more money into the federal government. The purpose is to increase wages for lower income folks. You can make a similar argument that on the flip side, that employers get a larger deduction for paying more in wages. And you would argue, well, that has budgetary effect. But I think you're right, Jennifer. Like, if all those things count, then almost every law change at some level impacts tax receipts directly or indirectly or the budget in some sort of way. And so it's going to be an interesting question, but it could easily be one of those things that ultimately the parliamentarian would say can't be in there and then query what happens to that. All right, Carol, let's leave the rescue plan behind for a moment. Let's turn to recover. I think it was the same question, more or less, I asked you about rescue. How does that become law? And if you're about to tell me that, well, you know, they're going to have to get 60 votes and if they can't get 60 votes, they have to use reconciliation. Does that create a problem? Because I think we just said that Democrats might have to use reconciliation to move rescue. So can they do it for recover? So that's a lot for you to think about. But could you try and answer some of that? I think it's even more likely that they would need to use reconciliation for the recovery plan than for the rescue plan. The recovery plan, as Jennifer was describing, that's a more mammoth undertaking that does involve a lot of different committees trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do on infrastructure? There'll be some energy stuff in it. There's a lot of difficult issues even for Democrats to wrestle with among themselves and for the different committees to figure out in a massive recovery plan what the particular priorities are, political issues raised there even with within the party. I think it's going to be harder to get bipartisan support. 
support for a big recovery plan. Now, of course, as I said, Biden's goal is to try to be bipartisan to the extent possible. So I think he'll make a good run at that. But I think this one is going to be more difficult, particularly when you start layering in the possibility, again, as Jennifer alluded to, of including revenue raisers to offset some of the costs of these programs. That's just going to make it all the more difficult to get significant bipartisan support. So I do think they're looking at the budget reconciliation process for this. And they could do that even if they have to use reconciliation. If they're not able to do the rescue bill on a bipartisan basis and they do a budget resolution and use reconciliation for that, for rescue, they'd be doing a budget resolution for the current fiscal year, the FY 2021 year. They could still do this year a budget resolution for FY 2022 that would set the targets and give them an amount that they could increase the deficit in the 10-year period and give the different committees instructions for the recovery period. So it's not a barrier. They could use reconciliation for both rescue and recovery plans if need be by doing a budget resolution for rescue for FY 2021 and then doing a budget resolution for the upcoming fiscal year FY 2022 and using the budget reconciliation process for that as well. And as I said, there's a good chance they may need to use reconciliation for both. I'm a little bit more optimistic that they might be able to do the rescue plan on a bipartisan basis and not have to do reconciliation. But for recovery with the prospect of revenue raisers that Republicans may have concerns with, as well as just the difficulty of putting together a mammoth spending bill, I could see that as being one where it's quite likely that they would need to use reconciliation for that. And Kara, I just wanted to jump in and remind our millions of listeners that if they use the reconciliation process for the first bill and then they needed to use it again for the second bill, the reason they would have to pass two budgets is because you can only have one reconciliation bill per fiscal year budget that addresses tax and spending. Because both of these bills would likely include both, that means they would have to pass one attached to one fiscal year, FY21, and one attached to the second fiscal year, FY22. So that's why you have this odd budget process. Of course, the federal government has a 930 year end. So I think what Carol said, and I, th- and I think I've heard you say this before too, is I think you would naturally think is, okay, well, I guess on October 1st, when we get to the new fiscal year, they can do another budget and another reconciliation bill. But I think you're saying, no, we can do the FY 2022 budget before FY 2022 begins and also have the reconciliation vehicle available before. Is that correct? Yes. The FY22 budget is actually what they should be doing this time of year. What's somewhat unusual here is the reason they have the FY21 reconciliation vehicle potentially available is because they did not do that last year. But this is the normal time when they're supposed to be doing the FY22 budget. This is the normal time when you would be looking at an FY22 reconciliation bill if you look at you know past decades. Interesting. So what you're saying is the FY22 one would actually be, air quote, normal one, or at least more on the normal schedule, even if they are doing it, say, this spring and summer, versus the FY21 one was being done very late in the process for what it's normally done. One other interesting thing you said, Carol, the complexity of Recover that, as you outlined, things I hadn't thought of is that you know, I thought, well, they're going to have trouble on how to pay for it. Well, that's true, right? How many tax increases are never easy to pass. But you also made the observation that just the items that are going to be in the recover plan that are going to need to be paid for are going to take some negotiation within the Democratic side as well. And I hadn't really thought about that, but it's a really good point that recover is not going to be just automatic and easy. Maybe we would see with rescue. So it'll be something to watch throughout the spring and into the summer, I imagine. Let's end this with one last question because got to bring it home to taxes. How do some of these tax proposals come into this? I mean, let me just put one observation. 
Is it possible we won't see any taxes as part of this because Democrats would agree to deficit finance entirely, both rescue and recover? Is that a plausible scenario or do we think that at some point they're going to have to raise taxes to help offset some of the cost here? Anybody have a point of view on that? If they do it the reconciliation, then they're going to need some type of offsets, at least for the out years, the long term, because of the rules governing reconciliation and the fact that reconciliation bills are not supposed to increase long-term deficits. So that would certainly push toward either major spending cuts to offset those spending increases or tax increases to offset those spending increases. Biden's already alluded to the fact that the recovery plan may include revenue offsets. He indicated that the cost of these historic permanent investments that would be made in infrastructure and manufacturing, innovation, R&D, clean energy, investments in the caregiving economy and skills and worker training, that those would all be partially paid for by making sure that everyone pays their fair share in taxes and closing tax loopholes. You know, that's the direction in which they're going is that they're viewing this as there may be some tax incentives in the recovery program. There may be both tax and non-tax provisions that are designed to encourage particular activities. So you could see some tax credits and other incentives to encourage R&D to promote U.S. manufacturing, things of that nature, but that they're also contemplating at least to some extent offsetting the cost by closing tax loopholes and making sure that everyone pays their, quote, fair share, unquote, in taxes. So I think that's their contemplation. One thing that the Republicans have seen used a lot in reconciliation bills are these delayed effective dates. So it's possible, perhaps, that some of these more controversial revenue raisers, even ones that are perhaps controversial within the Democratic Party, maybe they could have delayed effective dates with the argument being giving the economy time to recover from the COVID situation before they would go into effect. And maybe that might make it easier for some folks to swallow. They have to, even if we're doing a bill that's not going to get Republican support, they've got to get, again, given the narrow margins, virtually every single Democrat on board in the House. And if they don't have any Republicans on board in the Senate, every Democratic senator on board, that can mean that they're going to have to moderate some revenue raising proposals, maybe push effective dates into the future, do a variety of things so that they can both meet the math of reconciliation, but also make sure that they can secure the necessary votes to get it to the finish line. I hear you. And the only thing I'll say to that, and you all know this, is the harsh reality of the 10-year budget window is that delayed effective dates mean to get all the political pain of raising taxes, but not all of the revenue inside the 10-year window, right, because you're delaying it. They can fiddle with the, how much they'll be willing to raise the deficit in the window. It's the out years that's really the concerns because they can set their revenue target as they see fit for how much they're allowed to spend within the 10-year window. Like the TCJA said they had $1.5 trillion. Republicans said $1.5 trillion to spend. It's outside the window where the math gets difficult. Then I would expect there's a strong possibility they would just phase those things out inside the 10-year window as well. Look, we're getting at all the complex variables of doing a massive bill like this inside budget reconciliation. And wow, it is extremely difficult. And John, just one more point. You know, we've been talking a lot about reconciliation and the bird rules and how if legislation is done through the reconciliation mechanism, there are a lot of limitations on there. You know, one thing to keep in mind is we're assuming that those rules stay the same. It's possible perhaps that those rules could be changed as this process goes on and or perhaps even ignored through parliamentary procedures. So uh, just one thing to keep in mind, some of those limitations may not be as applicable as they have been in the past. Perhaps we shall see. 
Well, I guess we should leave it there for today. There's so much more to discuss on this point as we get through the next 100 days or so. And I promise you, we'll be back to you with more on this. But let me leave you with one last thought. You know, we don't do politics here. Nobody cares what I think should happen. They only care what I think could happen. And trust me, I'm okay with that. But no matter what your political leanings may be, left, right, or center, I think it's apparent we are in a time of exceptional partisan divide. But in the coming days and weeks as we go about our long tradition of a peaceful transition of power, let's hope we can put some of the politics behind us and focus again on the policy instead. Go ahead, call me naive or Pollyannish. But I was listening the other day to a podcast by who I consider to be the greatest podcaster of all time, Dan Carlin. And he reminded me of a quote from Dwight Eisenhower that I'd forgotten that I'm pretty sure I won't forget again. Eisenhower was responding to somebody's point, somebody's point of view that being middle of the road was a bad thing because that's where the roadkill is. And so I offer you Ike's reply and I do so without further comment. The middle of the road is all of the usable surface. The extremes, right and left, are in the gutters. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.